African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Welcome back to African Dialogue. Today we're zooming into Nigeria where more people have been killed by Islamist militants in the northeast of Nigeria. According to Reuters, dozens of people were killed on Sunday, including seven soldiers in the Mafa local government area of Bono State. It has been reported that in recent months, jihadists have killed more than 3,600 people in that area and the conflict has caused more than 2 million to migrate from their homes. In the past few weeks, there's been an increase of attacks on army camps, which are reported to come from militants linked to the Islamic State. And in our news bulletin, the latest that the release of the remainder of those girls who were kidnapped while at school also uh, took place recently. To help us with the discussion, we're now joined on the line by Matthew Page. He's from Chatham House, an associate fellow with the Africa Program. We're also joined by Dr. Olayinka Ajala. He's an associate lecturer at the University of York. Good morning to you, gentlemen, and thank you both for giving us your time. Good morning. Good morning. Matthew, do we understand what has informed the recent Islamic attacks in the Borno state? Well, uh, as we all know, this is the latest chapter in a long-running saga of violence in northeastern Nigeria and the Lake Chad Basin overall. Uh, as we, we also know, Boko Haram, the terrorist group Islamic State in West Africa, the group called Ansaru, these groups that are active in northeastern Nigeria are still somewhat of a black box. So we don't necessarily understand in terms of their own thinking, their own actions, what has caused this uptick in recent violence over the past few weeks. I mean, we know that in some ways these groups are opportunistic. In some ways they're simply struggling to fight another day against the onslaught of the Nigerian army and security forces. Uh, which is engaged very much in sort of a cat and mouse uh, struggle with these groups. They're obviously focused on embarrassing and delegitimizing the Nigerian military and the state through their attacks. And uh, I think the real reason why these attacks have ticked up in recent weeks is that Nigeria's military and security forces are increasingly overwhelmed by the amount of violence happening nationwide. Right now, uh, Nigeria is facing a multiple uh, threats to its security. You, you, we mean, we're talking about the attacks, the Islamic attacks, but also the kidnapping of girls. Do you think this is a strategy by uh, the insurgents? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think that this strategy isn't that new. Um, we know that kidnappings and attacks on uh, vulnerable military installations uh, are, are sort of a signature that uh, signature type of attack that the, these groups engage in. I think, um, again, the real reason why we're seeing an uptick in these attacks is the decreasing ability of the Nigerian state to safeguard um, vulnerable installations, whether they be schools or, or other civilian targets, and, um, and also their own military bases. And the, and the reason for this, I think, this diminished capacity of the state is that for you know decades now the Nigerian security forces really have sort of been hollowed out from within and uh, lost some of their their capacity and capability as a result of sustained mismanagement, 
uh, really rampant defense sector corruption, which has persisted uh, despite the uh, Buhari administration's uh, promises to clean up corruption in the country, and, and also really just, just neglect and the effect of, of a long war, a long sustained conflict in which the troops and the, the military has, has had no let up during that time. Speaking of of the President uh, Buhari, Dr. Ajala, he has um, committed when he was sworn in to to really fight uh, insurgency. Uh, How would you rate him? How has he managed this crisis so far? Um, It's been really difficult for the government, to be honest, uh, because as um, previously uh, said by the um, other speaker, the, the government is fighting... Uh, on many fronts, we have Boko Haram in the northeastern parts of, of Nigeria. Um, there, there is a lot of banditry going on in the northwest and northeast. And um, so all of these have been really overwhelming. Then also we have the secession movement in the southeastern part of the country as well. So the, the military is um, overwhelmed at the moment. And in addition, um, just to add to what was said earlier in terms of the, the spiking in the conflict or the, the, the attacks in the Northeast, uh, what we've observed in the last couple of years is anytime there is a change in military personnel, um, they, there is always a change in the, in the command structure, even up to the, to the um, levels of the, of the theater, the field, of the field as well. So Boko Haram and their affiliates are using this as an opportunity to carry out opportunistic um, um, attacks because in the last uh, couple of weeks, the head of all the military were changed, the, the military, the Navy, Army, Navy, Air Force, they were all changed. And this then filtered down to uh, commanders on the ground. There have been a lot of changes. I, I spoke to uh, some of uh, my informants, some of them in the military in the last couple of weeks, and they told me that one of the reasons why this increase in attack is because of the changes on ground. So Boko Haram realized that this is a time for them to make a mark and to put a stain on the government to prove that the war um, is, is not over yet. So the, the, the government fighting um, on many fronts, it's a key reason why it, they've not been able to um, achieve the, their campaign uh, goals of ending in, um, insecurity in Nigeria so far. But uh, why does it seem as if... Um the the military, the government, you know, the security forces, Dr. Ajala, are not um, able to control, to take control of the situation. The thing is, when you, when you fight an insurgency, what they do is they, they target soft spots. On a good day where there is an open battle between the military and these insurgent groups, be it Boko Haram or Banditry in the North Central, they don't stand a chance. But what they do is, they, they come out in large numbers and attack um, isolated military base. And if you, know, if you understand the topography of this region, it is very difficult. And so this is one of the problems. The second problem, again, is the um, intelligence gathering has been really, really poor in the last uh, couple of um, months, especially in the last 18 months. And this has impacted on, on uh, the gains made um, so far. Uh, if you look at what happened earlier this year, there was an attack on, on the J forces, a uh, part of the multinational joint task force operating in that region. And one of, one of the reasons, the key reason basically was because the intelligence came 12 hours after the attack. 
And so this is one of the problems in terms of intelligence gathering. Uh, one key problem is there is over-reliance on, on uh, external forces for intelligence gathering, um, the Britain, America. And what I gained, what I gathered is the fact that when intelligence is gathered, it first goes to either Washington or London before they then pass it on to the Nigerians or to the um, tax force fighting this. So sometimes there is a gap uh, and in, 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 in the fight against insurgency, a one-hour gap could actually make a lot of difference. So when you look at all of these, um, corruption has been mentioned um, and um, fighting at, at, on many fronts again, but I think one of that key reason why they've not been able to really um, make a lot of gains is the problem with intelligent gathering. I think there needs to be a change in these. There needs to be a change in terms of how they gather intelligence uh, on attacks or impending attacks. It, it, would you say, um, Matthew, that it's time for Nigeria to seek some, some help from continental uh, bodies? Sorry, Dr. Ajala. Okay. All right. Okay, sorry. I'll, I'll give that on to Matthew. We, we can come back to you. Okay. <laughs> no, sorry, I didn't get that. No, oh, sorry. No, no, no worries, no worries. Uh, yeah, I think, I think it's clear that that uh, that in any conflict, right, especially a cross-border conflict um, like the the Boko Haram insurgency, that of course involves uh, you know spilled over into Niger, northern Cameroon, and Chad, um, that uh, you have groups like the Islamic State in in West Africa, right, that are connected uh, at least you know notionally to broader transnational terrorist networks that that. It's important to to cooperate, whether it be to share intelligence, to seek international training and professionalization, and and the Nigerian military should, of course, do that. I, I think the biggest problem, of course, when it comes to the Nigerian military is that it's always been a very reluctant and difficult partner for international militaries. The Nigerian army, especially, is a very proud um, institution. It's one that doesn't feel that it needs uh, the help of, of outside entities, that it's, it doesn't feel that it needs reform, for example, which is, um, which is desperately needed, I think, in order to effectively prosecute what is one of the world's most deadly and complex counterinsurgencies. So until the Nigerian military basically, I think, has that epiphany, wakes up and says, yes, we really do benefit from working with outside entities and, and opens up and is willing to accept that cooperation and also accept the type of reforms that that, that cooperation, um, you know, that are prerequisites for that type of cooperation. So, for example, addressing their very poor human rights record, um, maybe tackling corruption and transparency within the military and especially its procurement and spending. Until that happens, I think, that we're not going to see the type of cooperation that could really help make inroads against the uh, the Boko Haram insurgency. Dr. Ajala, would you like to respond to the same question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree um, in terms of the, the pride of the Nigerian army in terms of, yeah, we've uh, fought wars in Sierra Leone and Liberia, have been, and we've been... Um, are very efficient at doing that. And in terms of help, I think it depends on the type of help we're talking about. Uh, they've, they've always sought help, um, especially in terms of intelligence gathering around the region. They sought help in terms of the creation of, of the multinational joint tax force. 
Um, but the problem in times of seeking help is what, again, is the interest of the people they are planning to work with? What's the interest of the partners um, that they are working with? Um, one of the reasons uh, why the multinational joint task force, which was created solely, uh, which was uh, remandated in 2015 to fight Boko Haram, one of the reasons why they, they've not been really effective is because the other partners um, did not believe it was an existential threat to them at the time of the uh, formation of this group. So um, seeking help is actually not a problem. It's the type of help and how efficient these are. Um, I, 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 at the moment, I don't think they are going to seek help in times of, of combat or combat-related activity, but definitely in times of um, intelligence and in times of um, um, infrastructures, because one of the key things, again, is the kind of infrastructures. We've had a lot of complaints from the um, from the guys on ground that the infrastructure or the, the, the military hardware they sometimes get to fight this insurgency is inferior to these insurgent groups. So um, those are the kind of helps that I, that I think um, is necessary, intelligence gathering and getting the right equipment in order to execute um, the, the work on ground. Let me just take a quick moment to acknowledge Teniola Tayo. He's the research officer of the Lake Chad Basin Program for the Institute for Security Studies, and he's in Dakar. That's in Senegal. Let's take a break. When we come back, I'll come to you, Teniola. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. There's nothing good about alcohol alcohol is destructive alcohol destroys families alcohol destroys life alcohol contributes to unprotected sex and spreading of diseases alcohol contributes to domestic violence abuse of children and women channel africa Welcome back to African Dialogue. We're zooming into Nigeria uh, uh, this morning, taking a look at the security issues that it's being faced, the uh, multi-faceted problems there, the multiple threats that are happening in Nigeria. And thank you so much, Teniola Tayo, for uh, being patient while I was engaging Dr. Ajala and Matthew Page. Uh, Welcome to the program. Thank you. No worries. It was all right. Taniola, what what is your assessment? Um, if we look at uh, the multiple threats, we look at security issues. Um, the gentleman speaking about intelligence, poor intelligence infrastructure, and that the capacity of the military at the moment is really at its weakest. Do you think that it could be a strategy by um, the insurgents at the moment? Well, I think. You know, what is going on at the moment, and actually I'm joining from Abuja, I'm in Abuja presently. Oh, thank you. And I think what is going on is uh, the coming together of a few different things. So we had the the threat from the violent extremists, Boko Haram and Iswap and and whatnot, and then now we're having the rise in banditry. But then they're not quite the same thing, and the rise in banditry or criminality, I mean, we call them bandits, but then it's just criminal gangs all over the place, would have required more of a policing response. Okay. Yes, I was saying that I think there may be a signaling effect going on where, you know, a lot of attacks are happening and they're getting reported. And then you have other groups, you know, seeing that, okay, they can get away with doing similar attacks. So the opportunism is is also coming through. So there is is a signaling effect that is 
emphasizing or that is, you know, displaying the incapacity of the security forces, whether it's the police or the military, and that is also increasing the acceleration of, of the criminal activities. So I think it's a couple of things coming together. I mean, obviously, there's the unemployment situation, there's food inflation, and there's the fact that, you know, people will, 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 will maximize whatever avenues are available to them to, to earn a kind of living and then get into criminality and criminality becomes more rewarding than even um, honest, honest work. So it's a, a couple of things coming together. Staying with you, uh, Teniola, I mean, why is Nigeria's northern region so contested? Because um, the Nigerian security tracker says more than 2,000 violent deaths were recorded between February 2020 and 2021 in Bono State alone. I mean, there is the fact that it's been the epicenter of the of the Boko Haram conflict, so that will have lasting effects. But then, if you even go back to the history of that region, uh, you know, conflict is not a very new thing. So it's always been a bit of a contested area where you know it often falls into some regions fall into the hands of criminal gangs or 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 you know or groups like that so it's it's not a very new thing in 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 that sense even if you go back to pre-colonial history but then i think that for the current um numbers that we're seeing it's it's pretty much because it was it's the epicenter of the Boko Haram conflict and of course there'll be um a spillover effect so you have a conflict happening in one area it means that there is a, a setup of a, a supply of arms and you know different things like that and it will contribute to the growth of criminality or violence entrepreneurship in the in the entire region Matthew same question to you you know why are we seeing this instability from this particular region in Nigeria well I think part of it has to do with the fact that um, Borno state right is uh, sort of very much on the periphery of, of Nigeria, right? It's in the far northeastern part of the country. Uh, as Teniel mentions, it's sort of, there, there's a lot of history there in terms of connections to uh, other parts of the continent. It's a crossroads, both in terms of east-west trade, you know, across the Sahel, and then, you know, uh, into Sudan and so forth. And so it's it's always been very distant from the uh, centers of Nigerian uh, state state power, right? Whether that be Lagos or more recently Abuja, it's it's sort of in that in that in that far periphery. So I think, um, and as Taniola said, I think a real important factor, right, in sort of why it's become this this center of conflict is the sort of cycles of uh, escalation that have taken place over the past uh, twelve years, really, since the um, real flare-up till the since the Boko Haram conflicts were burst into the open in July of 2009, when the uh, Nigerian government killed the the former leader of the group, Mohammed Yusuf, and the entrenchment of the conflict economy that's taken place uh, since then. So I think a good way to think about this is right that if you're an 18-year-old living in Borno State right now, you've really known nothing other than war in your in your living memory. And so I think that's part, you know explains to a great extent right why this region is is so engulfed in, in conflict and sort of trapped in these cycles of violence. Dr. Ajala, uh, how does the instability, security instability in Nigeria affect um, neighboring countries? I mean, already we're seeing um, that more than two million people have migrated from their homes. 
Yeah, it, it affects neighboring countries because of um, the number of displaced people that we've seen um, in the last years, it's, and it's increasing again. Previously, when most, most of the people were displaced into Cameroon um, and then uh, Niger Republic, but more recently, due to the issues of the criminality and banditry, which uh, has been uh, mentioned earlier, we've seen even people in southwest Nigeria displayed into uh, they've been displaced and moved into Benin, Republic of Benin. So it's um, when, when you have conflict and um, insecurity, people would move and people will move to the um, to the safest place available for them. And sometimes it has to eat across the border. So there has been a lot of displacement, which has impacted on, on the neighboring countries. And then also the border regions as well, when you have an, um, a problem in the country, and we have all this problem of porous borders, um, these groups are able to carry out um, attacks, not only in the country where the epicenter as mentioned, but also in the neighboring countries because of the porous borders. So um, insecurity in Nigeria definitely affects the neighbors um, in, in several ways. Okay, let's take another break. When we come back, we I want I want us to take a look at um, the call by lawmakers to uh, have um, Nigeria declared a state of emergency. You know, are these at this stage? Is it warranted? How can that be uh, interpreted? Let's go for a break. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. There is nothing good about alcohol. Alcohol is destructive. Alcohol destroys families. Alcohol destroys life. Alcohol contributes to unprotected sex and spreading of diseases. Alcohol contributes to domestic violence, abuse of children and women. Channel Africa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netlec to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Welcome back to African Dialogue. A reminder that in 15 minutes time, we're going to get an update from the Econ Desk, followed by the sports news. And at the top of the hour, Africa Midday is coming up. Well, on the program today, we're zooming into Nigeria, looking at the security 
challenges that the country is faced with, uh, the continuing security crisis in the north of Nigeria with continued attacks uh, taking place in the Borno state in recent weeks, killing dozens and causing thousands to flee from their homes. We're speaking to Matthew Page from Chatham House's Africa program. He's an associate fellow. We're also speaking to Dr. Olayinka Ajala. He's an associate lecturer at the University of York. And Teniola Tayo also joins us from Abuja, Nigeria. She's a research officer of the Lake Chad Basin program for the Institute for Security Studies. Teniola, lawmakers uh, in Nigeria calling for a state of an emergency at this stage. Um, is it warranted? I would, I mean, I, I would agree with them because when you have a crisis and when you see its escalation, so when you see accelerated growth, you want to try your best to get in front of it as much as possible. Well, what I would say is that I don't think it's just about declaring a state of emergency. You know, I, I think it's, it's more about um, assessing, so evaluating the strategies that have been used so far and trying to fix things. I don't know if you, there was a paper that come, came out by um, a professor, Professor Oriola, and he, he interviewed a couple of people in the military in senior positions and engineer positions, and they have the perception that there are also intelligence leaks going on. So, for example, I'm not sure that there is any attempt to really, you know, find out if that is true and, and how it is happening and what to do about that because you have senior guys in the military, also former military officers that believe that, you know, one of the reasons why the war is going on for so long is because there are senior people within the government or within the military that are, you know, leaking intelligence to, to extremists, to violent extremists and, you know, um, undermining the, the, the war against insurgency. The implications for that, even for the for the soldiers, is, is, is very serious. The implications for their morale. So I do think that, you know, even beyond calling for a state of emergency, it's to ask the question, are we even implementing a holistic strategy? We have a kidnapping crisis. A lot of people have been drawing attention to its growth in the past couple of years. Have we even, you know, put together an anti-kidnapping strategy that cuts across the entire country and let's address this as a problem, as, as a big problem that is, that is happening now. And the way we have been approaching the, the war against extremism, is there a need to reassess things? You know, we're seeing less results and is there a need to do things a bit differently? So I think that that is more important than, you know, the level of a state of emergency. Dr. Ajala, what are your thoughts with the call by lawmakers? Teniolo, they're also mentioning that um, there are intelligent leaks according to the military itself, which really speaks to what you were emphasizing earlier about the poor uh, intelligence within the army. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was what I mentioned earlier. Uh, and the intelligence leak is one of the reasons why there have been the gap between their, uh, the foreign partners, Britain, US, and France, and then the Nigerian military. Because if you feel that intelligence will be leaked, then you would ascertain and also decide the amount or the level of um, intelligence you want to share. Um, in terms of... Um, uh, the state of emergency. To be honest, I when I had, when I read that, I I didn't quite understand what they they are talking about because um, the military this in in the history of Nigeria, the military has never been deployed um, on numerous fronts as as they are now. There's a pump. There's been a deployment in the Niger Delta for over ten years now to secure infrastructures there, which has been for over ten years. Um, they've been deployed in the northeast. 
um, to fight um, Boko Haram. They've been deployed in the northwest or north central to fight banditry. So if there's going to be a state of emergency, what else are they going to do now? It's not clear what that would take. A lot of money, because when we're talking about state of emergency, it means um, uh, putting in policies that the government would normally not put in place in under normal circumstances. But the moment now, uh, the military spending, the deployment, and um, the, uh, the things that are going on is tantamount to a state of emergency already. So it's not clear what is going to, a state of emergency is going to fix because of the things. Now, $1 billion was still allocated, I think, in the last um, two years to buy um, equipment for the military. So a state of emergency at the moment is not actually, um, I don't think it's going to make any difference because I think the country is already in a state of emergency, personally. What more can the military do, Matthew, then, if they're already overexhausted, they're overstretched? Um, Dr. Jala saying that it seems already a state of emergency. Yeah, and I think one more thing to add about the state of emergency is this is really sort of a constitutional and, and legal declaration, right? And I think the biggest effects of that declaration is one to actually suspend civilian governance in the affected state. So actually replacing the governor and civilian officials with basically de facto military administrators. And this is again, a sort of uh, a provision within Nigeria's constitution in, in sort of grave circumstances to, to declare a state of emergency. And the other is to really suspend uh, basic human rights, such as the right to life and so forth. And so, so again, I, I would agree with, with Teniola and Professor Ajala and say that, that this really wouldn't make any operational difference. And in fact, I think what, what would make it very worrying, right, is it would basically antagonize a lot of the, the, the governance issues, the poor governance that and, and the lack of uh, human rights and representation that, that people feel in the Northeast, right, that are drivers of the conflict. Um, in terms of what the uh, military can and should do to address the crisis in the North, I mean, I think, right, the answer is in a way in the question in the sense that this can't be a military-only strategy. Um, Teniola mentioned a little while ago talking about the need for improved policing. Um, you know, what tends to happen in the Nigerian context is that when security threats spiral uh, very quickly out of control, out of the ability of Nigeria's sort of predatory and, and ineffective police to to control, then the military is called in, right? And usually militaries defend a country's border against external threats. But in the Nigerian context, what's happened is there's been a militarization of domestic policing. And with all the you know, uh, rule of law and governance and human rights problems that, that that entails with it. So what we really need to see in order for the conflict in the Northeast to be addressed properly is a massive uh, retraining, re-resourcing and professionalization of the police. We need reform within the military. I mean, Prof was talking about, you know, the the massive expenditures on equipment, but at the same time, the um, the lack of functional or appropriate equipment at the front lines and the under-resourcing of troops in the field. There is an extreme disconnect between the opaque, uh, massive opaque security spending and, and, and military procurement that's gone on over, over the last decade and the, the lack of capacity at the front lines. And so again, the Nigerian military really needs to get to, get to grip 
with its corruption problems before it can effectively tackle uh, a terrorist group as, as lethal and persistent as Boko Haram. Last question to you, Matthew, before I, I give uh, Dr. Ajala and Tenyola their the final sentiments. The military has also pledged support um, for Buhari despite the calls for him to step down. Can we believe them? Um, I think that what we've seen in, in recent years is the military has, for the most part, I think, stepped back from its its past habit of intervening in, in civilian politics. I mean, we have had civilian rule in Nigeria since 1999. Um, the, there's almost been a sort of bureaucratization of the Nigerian military where they've stepped away from, from politics. And in return, civilian politicians like Buhari, or, you know, uh, he's now a civilian politician. Obviously, he previously served as a military ruler, have, have in exchange sort of exercised a very loose grip, a very loose control over the military, and essentially allowed them to to function quite independently with with minimal oversight. And so I think that really in Nigeria now, all eyes, uh, all attention among civilian politicians is is, uh, on the 2023 elections. President Buhari is obviously not eligible to to run for re-election after having served two terms. So there'll be a lot of competition and jockeying for the presidency. And I think the military is, um, is going to, for the most part, stay out of stay out of that and respect the constitutional succession. I think where we can and should be worried, of course, is that, you know, over the coming years, as time goes on, if insecurity worsens significantly, um, then there may be calls from different quarters in Nigeria for the military to, to step in and take greater control. But I don't see that necessarily leading to better security outcomes, right? Because if the military in Nigeria were ever to reinsert itself into politics, it would become further distracted, uh, you know, further incapable of pursuing its primary mission to, to secure Nigeria, and also would become mired in corruption as it, as it was you know, during Nigeria's long periods of military rule. Mm. Taniola, your last sentiments to the conversation? Yes, so in, given the reality of limited resources and the fact that the security forces are overwhelmed and they're getting extremely strained, I think that the government has to explore even some more creative ways of, of winning this war against criminality and insurgency. There are ways to, for example, to maximize the impact of even the few extremists or, or bandits that are getting arrested and try to use it as a source of deterrence for others. I don't think it's about... Um, Buhari posting on Twitter threatening bandits because they're not on Twitter. So I think that there are some ideas that we can we can look at because we have this reality of um of limited resources and I do think that we need to we need to explore other ways to to win this war. Of course, there's involving the communities because they're very key and they're the ones that have the the solutions to a lot of these issues. But then there's, for example, potentially publishing the names of bandits that have been arrested in the on radio because you know they're more likely to listen to radio stations, they're stations that are very popular over there, and just really thinking in new ways, you know, about how to to address this conflict because it's obvious that what we've been doing so far is is, is not working is not working quite well. Mm-hmm. 
Dr. Ajala, apologies. I'm going to have to cap your, your response to two minutes. Uh, your parting shots and also just looking, um, if we draw from that line uh, that Taniola left, creative ways of, of winning this this war. Yeah, um, I, I agree with um, Taniola and what um, Matthew said previously. The, the military solution is proved not to be working. And um, uh, my, my greatest fear at the moment now is um, how this is resulting in food insecurity. Um, I've been researching this in the last one year, and um, it, it's really scary, the number of farmers that have been displaced all around the country. When you think about the fact that um, about 60% of Nigerians, directly or indirectly, are depend on agriculture as a source of living, um, this insecurity all around the country, um, both banditry, farmer elders conflict, and terrorism, is impacting on agriculture. So that, I think that is the first thing that needs to be addressed uh, because um, the more the um, threat to food insecurity increases, the more the risk of um, the conflict um, escalating. So if, if that is nipped in the board and then people can begin to return to, to their farms and people can begin to work and you know, the supply chains begin to be active again, I think then they, we can then begin to focus on um, on on the, the secondary issues um, of insecurity. Thank you so much to all three of you for giving us your time. That's the voice of Dr. Olayinka Ajala. He's an associate lecturer at the University of York. We're also joined by Teniola Tayo, research officer of the Lake Chad Basin Program with the Institute for Security Studies. Lastly, but definitely not least, Matthew Page from Chatham House. He's an associate fellow with the Africa Program. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. 